in, recorded in the book of Revelation. And uh, today we are in our third letter to the church at Pergamum. So by way of introduction, um, I'll tell you a story. Heard a, a story of a man who went out hunting and uh, he found a big black bear. And he uh, had always wanted to shoot a black bear. And he had just the right gun to do the job. So he got that bear in his sights and was beginning to squeeze the trigger. And uh, just then that bear turned around and said, Excuse me. Bears, you know, really can't talk, but this is a story. Isn't it better to talk about this than just to go ahead and shoot that gun? Let's, let's negotiate the matter. And the hunter said, well, okay, I'm open to that. So the bear said, what is it that you want exactly? And the hunter said, well, I want more than anything else. I want a fur coat because I'm really cold. And the bear said, well, okay, that's good. Now we're getting somewhere. How about if we... Uh, reach some kind of a compromise. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. I want a full stomach. So the hunter put down his gun, and the hunter and the bear disappeared in the forest. short while later, the bear emerged alone, very pleased that the negotiation had been successful. And the point of that story is, this is how compromise works. It really doesn't, does it? The message of Jesus to the third church challenges them to recognize and reject compromise. This is not to say that there isn't value in giving genuine dialogue with those with opposing views. Or that it isn't helpful in relationships to talk through issues and maybe end up agreeing to disagree. But the point that Jesus is addressing with this church is that when it comes to matters of truth, when it comes to matters of walking with God in a culture that really doesn't acknowledge him and that pushes back against him, Compromise, in reality, is really only a one-way negotiation. And if we compromise with the gospel, the bear is going to win. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and see if we might be able to see this warning and how to address it. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin 
so that they ate food sacrificed to idols. That probably refers to eating at an idol feast, entering into the worship of idol over an idol meal. So that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This group of people who adapted to the teaching of Balaam. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Second time he talks about the double-edged sword. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give much of the, some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of God. The city of Pergamum was situated some 55 miles north of Smyrna, which is the location of the church we addressed last week. It wasn't nearly as large as either Ephesus or Smyrna, but it had something that neither one of those others had, didn't have. This city was where the Roman Empire met to do business in the Asian section of the empire. Ephesus was a sort of the New York City, the, the big, bustling, commerce city. Smyrna was the Chicago of the Roman Empire. That is, if one buys into the stereotype of Chicago being a city of violence against the innocent, which may or may not be fair, um, but just for sake of comparison. Pergamum would be the Washington, D.C., of the Asian section of the Roman Empire. It was a center cog for politics and decision-making. Notice how Jesus addresses this church. Verse 13, I know where you live. Now, this isn't a threat. (laughs) You know, I know where you live, you know. This was a statement of, I get it. I understand your situation. I understand where you live. This is a, not an easy place to live. Sets up the context for the story, for the, for the letter. To Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your deeds. And that set up their discussion. And then in Smyrna, he said, I know your affliction. And that set up their discussion. So here, I know where you live, sets up this discussion. And here's where they lived. Verse 13. They lived in a city where Satan had his throne. Pergamum was a center of pagan worship. Idols, altars, shrines, temples to gods were many scattered throughout the city. Pergamum had the reputation of having the grand altar to Zeus. Now, I don't know how tall our church building is at the peak, maybe 20 feet This altar was 40 feet tall. And it was a place that was recognized as the altar to Zeus in Pergamum. Then there was this god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. There are all sorts of stories how people would come into this temple seeking healing through their worship and and, uh, idolatry in this, this temple. 
Then there was a temple to the emperor, built so that the city became a leading center of emperor worship. False worship was all over this town. Spiritual idolatry, placing gods before the true and living God. And so Jesus summarizes this environment of this city where idol worship was so rampant. He says, this is, this is where Satan lives. This is his throne. Yet, this is where the Christians lived. This is where they raised their families. This is where they worked. And here's a special circumstance that required a special awareness. And Jesus needs to address this awareness with these people. I would suggest that the culture in Pergamum is not unlike Western culture in the 21st century, where followers of Jesus live and work and raise our families. And as we do, we are confronted with the throne of Satan in our culture. Now, that's not to try to be close-minded and, you know, narrow-minded and judgmental. It's just true. Because even though we might not have physical statues and idols and feasts to idols, idolatry in our culture is rampant. It's subtle. There's the idol of self and personal attention. You see that? I am the center of the world. There is the idol of authority and being in control. Sometimes it's whoever can shout the loudest and be the meanest that controls things. That's where there's bullies and and people that try to exalt themselves on other people. There are material idols of cars and boats and houses. There are career idols climbing the ladder to get to the top. There are sports idols, athletes, teams that are the center of our attention. There are entertainment idols. Some of us know everything there is to know about certain entertainers. Sometimes we, unintentionally, but we do, we make our children our idols. I think sometimes that's contributes to the poor behavior of parents at athletic games where they live their lives through their children because their children give them the satisfaction of being able to do something that they themselves couldn't do. And so their children become their idols. Idolatry is finding our significance in something other than our relationship with God. So here's a challenge for the church at Pergamum and well as for us, possibly. Can we live in a world where there's all this false worship but not be of the world? Can we live where Satan has his throne and not to allow him to infiltrate our faith? As a church, can we avoid... Compromise. Now, our enemy, Satan, has used two tactics to render the church powerless in history. One of them we looked at carefully last week, and that's direct persecution. 
But as we saw last week, oftentimes when Satan directly persecutes a Christian or directly persecutes a church, rather than making it weak, it makes him strong. (laughs) Because when we rely upon God in the midst of difficulty and hardship, sometimes our faith actually even becomes stronger and becomes attractive to those who are watching. So sometimes... Satan abandons the direct approach and tries to work from the inside. And that's what happened here at Pergamum. Sometimes he tries to work from the inside out. One pastor that I read this week says this. He gets us off track and switches the real gospel for a false gospel. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. He tricks us into thinking that there are other things as important as serving Christ and, and speaking to the lost. He gets us to believe that holiness is optional and that true contentment to Christ, commitment to Christ, is too radical and weird. He seduces us. Sometime might think that sin is really not all that bad. It's no big deal. He says we can have Christ plus all that the world has to offer us. And I think that's what happened in Pergamum. These people were in the midst of the throne of Satan. And uh, even though Jesus commends them for remaining true to his name, perhaps that's all they had was his name. In fact, in verse 17... He tells them that if they repent and come back to true walking with him, he'll give them a new name. In fact, that's really what happens when we go through baptism. Because you remember that Jesus said, I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, when we become baptized, we become a Christian. We, have, we don't become a Christian, but we acknowledge that we're a Christian. And we take on a new identity. We take on a new name. And so Jesus is coming alongside of these people and he says, I want to just give you the evidence of compromise. And that evidence of that compromise is found in verses 14 and 15 through the example of Balaam. Now, Balaam was was a Gentile who was a, a sorcerer in the Old Testament. And the king of one of the enemies of Israel, Moab, came to Balaam and said, you know, these people of Israel, they're, they're just a powerful nation and they're, they're taking over the land. I want you to put a curse on them. <laughs> and so Balaam said, okay, I'll be glad to do that. And several times he went to curse Israel, but God intervened and what came out of his mouth was a blessing instead. The direct approach didn't really work. And so Balaam decided, well, maybe I'll do something different. And in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we have the account of Balaam coming along to this king and saying, why don't you get them from the inside? Why don't you tempt them to false worship and sexual immorality? And that's exactly what happened. It's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 25, where Balaam's advice 
was taken and infiltrating into Israel was sexual immorality, was false worship, and the people became weak. Revelation 2 tells us that the Nicolaitans did the same thing. Their false gospel, their false teaching was adopted and they infiltrated the church through the same tactics. And there were some in this church who were following the advice and teaching of Balaam. Sexual immorality was accepted. False worship and idolatry was tolerated. Now, it wasn't everybody in the church, and the whole church didn't do this, but here's what happened. This church let it go. They said, it's all right. It's just a few people in that one small group. Or it's only that one Sunday school class. It's really not that serious. And Jesus comes to them and says, no, wait a minute. (laughs) Yes, this is serious. This is not something that we can just let go. So he says in verse 16, repent. Otherwise, I'm going to come to you and I will fight with them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth. Verse 12. These are the words to him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. And we see how powerful the sharp, double-edged sword is in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns as a conquering king on his white stallion and he defeats his foes with what? The word of God that comes out of his mouth. And that's how he defeats his enemies. And so as Jesus comes here to this church in Pergamum and as he's confronting them with their slipping into compromise, he says, you know what needs to happen? You need to get back to the Word of God. You need to think about what's going on in the Word of God. And so I would suggest to you this. Compromise in the local church is avoided by faithfully and continually upholding the authority of the Bible. Faithfully and continually upholding the authority of the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord. The sword of my mouth, the word of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 6 too, doesn't he? What's the sword of the Spirit? The word of God. You see, I believe that Bible teaches very clearly that we are created for nourishment. More than just physical nourishment, we are created to need spiritual nourishment. And that spiritual nourishment is the Bible. And so Jesus is telling this church, listen, you've fallen into compromise. You need to get back to the Bible. You need to put the scriptures as number one in your life. The Word of God is that double-edged sword that that cuts through false teaching and reveals truth that satisfies the longings of our heart and brings that fulfillment that we are all truly hungering for. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, 
correcting and training in righteousness, that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's breath. It's God-breathed. It's what comes out of his mouth, so to speak, figuratively. The Bible does not become the word of God. The Bible does not contain the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. God spirated out the scriptures and the truth. And then notice in verse 15, it's understandable. It's able to make you wise. So it's God-breathed and it's understandable. And then understand this. It is useful. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, maybe some of you know what I'm going to suggest here. Do you see repentance in these four words? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Let's say a person is walking their Christian life and they're exposed to the teaching of the word of God. And they read something that causes them to pause. And so then they read some more and that scripture says, you know, you are you are going down a wrong path. That's kind of like a rebuke. So what do we need to do? We need to be corrected. And after we are corrected, is that enough? No, it's not enough. We need training in righteousness. See, that's what... Repentance is, and I've been saying over and over again, the key to a healthy, Bible-centered Christian life is a joyful lifestyle of realizing that we're walking down a wrong path, turning from it, presenting ourselves to God, and then moving down the right path. That's what Jesus is telling this church to do. Repent. Get back to the Bible. Teach what the Bible says. So here's my question. How do we preserve doctoral purity while nurturing a loving family? (laughs) That's what the church in Ephesus was struggling with. How do we keep our finger on the text, call one another to obedience to the word of God, and uphold biblical ethics without compromise, all the while living in a world where Satan has his throne? How do we love those who are under his spell, and welcome them into our church, befriend them, have our children go to youth group with them without compromise, without falling into the trap of Satan weakening us from within, undermining the authority of the Bible. It falls under keeping the Bible front and center in all that we do and say. So let me give you what I think is a very serious weakening in the local church. And it comes from a book that was written many years ago by a couple of scholars who did some research into youth ministry in evangelical churches. Christian Smith, Melinda Denton, wrote this book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And as they wrote this book, they analyzed local churches and how they were attempting to reach the youth of their community. And their evaluation is that 
youth leaders were admirable in their motives, but they fell into the trap of compromising the truth of the word of God. And their conclusion was, it's not the fault of the youth leaders, because the church where they are living and ministering did it first. Here's what they suggested. They fell in not to upholding the authority of the Bible. They fell into thinking that the gospel is moralistic. Moralistic. That means that the goal of being a Christian is to be kind, patient, honest, a servant, obedient, respectful of one another. We've fallen into the trap of teaching that God is pleased when we have good morals. We all just get along with one another and treat others as we want to be treated. Be a good person. Be a nice person. That's all that God wants of you. Be a good person. Teach good morals. Aesop's fables. (laughs) You see, that's moralism. That's being moralistic. And you know what? The Bible does not teach that. You know what the Bible says about our good deeds and our own personal righteousness? (laughs) He says, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. And then Romans chapter 3 just goes on and it just explains like our heart is like an open grave, our tongues is evil, da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, whoa. Jeremiah says our good works are what? Filthy rags. You see, outside of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he gives us, Romans 3 tells us, that as we place our faith in Christ, verse 22, righteousness is given to us as a gift as we are clothed in Jesus Christ. Now, when we obey him and do good works, it's an expression of our love for him based on the new life that he's placed within us. That's the gospel. And be careful of thinking that the embodiment of the gospel is just to be nice and learn how to do nice moral things. I think that's compromise. Then these authors talk about the gospel being therapeutic. (laughs) The purpose of having a relationship with God is so that he will help us. He will help us with our problems. He'll give us fulfillment and happiness. And so we sometimes think that, well, we'll have a quiet time and make out our prayer list. And so then God will reward us with a reasonable lifestyle, reasonably good health, comfort. He'll help me with my my problems and the things that I go through in life. And uh, when we run into difficulties, we just need to pray and God's going to solve all of our problems. Tell that to the church in Smyrna. That's not reality, and that's not the gospel. See, it's true that God answers our prayers, but he is the one who is sovereign over all of our lives. And the gospel tells us that sometimes in life, if we want to grow up, sometimes if we want our faith to be stronger, sometimes we need to run into a little bit of resistance instead of having God be our Therapist. See, that's another easy trap we fall into 
and compromise. And then the third one is kind of a philosophical word. It's called deism. Deism is an approach to understanding God that supposes that God is there, but we keep him at arm's length. He's watching us from a distance, but really isn't interested in the deep personal issues of sexual identity, extreme anxiety, loneliness, bullying, hunger, and injustice. Because if he really was interested in those things, he'd fix them. So what we do is we come up with a new doctrine called sola bootstrapia. Which translated from the Latin means pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and subscribe to Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, God Helps Those Who Help Themselves. That is not the gospel. God is intimately involved in your life. So much so that he came and became a baby dependent on his mommy, wet his diapers, had to be breastfed. Can you imagine the humility there? He is so involved in our lives that he walked a mile in our shoes and let people accuse him of horrible things and they nailed him to a cross. That's how involved God is in your life, in my life. A deist, there's no way. But you see, if we buy into this moralistic, therapeutic deism, what do we do with our mission mandate? What do we tell Pastor Enoch in Haiti? Is it worth it? That's his calling. Of course it's worth it. And he's one, certainly, who's not compromising. He's there doing the hard work, faithfully representing the gospel to people who desperately need it. What would we do if he bought into moralistic, therapeutic deism? You see, we've got to be careful of this compromise. Deny ourselves. Pick up our cross. And follow Jesus with a lifestyle of repentance into sacrificial outreach to the lost, true pursuit of holiness and obedience that is empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Yes, we are challenged to be kind, to be patient, to be a servant, to be obedient, to be respectful of one another. Yes, we are to be a good person. But why? We do it because we love Jesus. Back in the 1970s, some of you will remember this, when President Carter was president, he liked to visit a community and stay with somebody in their home. Remember that? He was famous for staying in the homes of people who were, who were uh, just the average person. Can you imagine a person who was hosting the President of the United States? What would they want to do? Think they'd clean their toilets? Man, they would have they would have that house spick and what's that word spick and span? They'd mow the lawn twice. They'd trim every flower. They'd get every weed. They would do everything they could. Why? The president's coming. Why do we do good deeds? Why are we patient? Why are we loving? Why are we honest? We serve the king, not Jesus. We serve. That's why. 
That's the gospel. That's why we work hard at music rehearsal. That's why we get our church painted. That's why we have awesome youth ministries. Because we serve the king and he deserves it. That's the gospel. That's the word of God. God deserves our very best. You see, Jesus warns this church and all churches, beware of compromise. Faithfully and continually uphold the authority of the Bible. You know, compromise doesn't happen overnight. The contemporary Christian group Casting Crowns is a very interesting song. And I close with this. It's called the slow fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. The price will be paid when you give yourself away. People, churches, never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Sometimes church is messy, isn't it? Sometimes being a Christian family is messy. Is it worth it? Is it worth upholding the word of God? Is it worth keeping the word of God front and center in our lives? Jesus said, the word that comes out of my mouth will give you nourishment and protect you from compromise. Father in heaven, help us take these words to heart, not just for our church, but for our homes, our families, and for our individual lives. Please protect us from falling into the opposite pendulum and becoming hard and judgmental, but to be loving but to have the word of God front and center in our lives. Protect us from the subtleties of compromise. And maybe you be honored in the way that we work hard at keeping you number one and keeping your word as a source of our nourishment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.